Some red flags would be definitely if they don't immediately propose an NDA, um, even if they don't have their own form, if they don't expect that to be part of the process early on, that would be a huge red flag because confidentiality is so important and it's really just not professional in that industry to not respect that. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. What are the major watchouts for a co-man contract? What should be there and what shouldn't? What's boilerplate and what might hurt you and the relationship in the long run? Lauren Handel joins us to cover both the legal and common sense side of these agreements. Lauren is the principal attorney of Handel Food Law, a law firm dedicated to food, beverage, and farming businesses. Listen in as Lauren walks through the process of forming a great contract with your co-manufacturer from key contract provisions to common red flags to planning for amicable endings and more. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the show today. So glad you're here. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to talk with you today about co-manufacturing contracts, a hot topic for everyone. And I'm excited to be able to share this with our startup CBG community. Is it something that we have? We have contract manufacturers and brands both in the community, both trying to navigate what can be a tricky topic when we're we're trying to get the best best outcome for everyone. So I'd love if you could just Give us a little bit about your your background and what you do, and then we'll get into the questions. Sure. Um, well, I have a small law firm called Handel Food Law, and um, we're very small. Where it's it's me as the only full time attorney and two others who help me, and we are exclusively focused on the food industry. So most of my clients are CPG companies, brand owners uh, for food or beverage products or dietary supplements. Um, but I also have clients who are in other parts of the food supply chain from farmers down through restaurants and caterers, retailers some manufacturers, importers, kind of the whole gamut. And so we are focused on food. So a lot of that work is regulatory compliance. Um, a lot of that is reviewing people's labels and marketing materials um, for compliance and to help them not get sued, <laughs> ideally is the goal. Um, but then I also do a lot of contracts that are common in the food space, which includes the topic of today, um, co-manufacturing agreements being a big part of that work, um, but also other sorts of contracts with various kinds of service providers, distributors, brokers, and the like. Um, and then I also do a lot of trademark work for my clients. Excellent. That's awesome. Super huge need that you're filling in in the area. So I'm I'm thinking, let's just kind of walk through some examples of like, let's say I, I used to have a, a little tiny gluten-free bakery um, that I that I sold at little places. So I'm thinking like, all right, let's say I've got a gluten-free cookie. I've got the recipe, you know, down in, in smaller scale. I want to go to a co-manufacturer, but I know nothing about the contract process. I don't know anything about the R&D process. Can you walk me through what are some, you know, as you're, you're going in with your, your product and your idea, some types of contracts for the R&D process versus a full run? Can we talk a little bit about that? And then we can go into some of the, the more specific pieces of the, the process. Sure. And if so, let me just give the general caveat and disclaimer that this discussion is for informational purposes and I, I can't offer legal advice to anyone who's not my client. So, and I, I really encourage people, if they have a legal question to hire a lawyer who can consider all of their particular situation and needs. Um, but just as, you know, 
general matter, um, what I see as being typical in this process of starting relationship with a co-manufacturer is um, there's some initial discussions, right? You need to evaluate each other, really both parties looking at whether this is a relationship that can work. And so some confidential information needs to be exchanged during those early discussions. Um, For example, the brand owner that has the recipe is going to need to disclose that recipe at some point fairly early on so that the manufacturer can figure out if this is something they can make, um, how they would source ingredients if they're going to be do that, doing that part of it and what it's all going to cost. And for food, it's especially important. It's important in, in probably all industries, but for food, it's really important that there be confidentiality protections because most of the intellectual property associated with a food product can only be protected as trade secrets as opposed to getting patent protection. Um, So to maintain a trade secret, you have to keep it secret, which means when you disclose it to somebody that has to be under an obligation of confidentiality. So it is standard practice to have a non-disclosure agreement early on in those conversations with a co-manufacturer. It's usually a mutual agreement, meaning it protects both parties' confidential information because the brand owner also is going to learn some confidential things that belong to the manufacturer probably. Um, So that's usually step one is a fairly standard form mutual NDA. And you mentioned that it's kind of standard, but is there anything on either side that can be, have you ever seen an NDA that like hasn't, hasn't worked or, you know, like someone sent over something and you're like, oh, like let's send a different one back or generally they all kind of do, they do the same thing, generally all good to go? Yeah. Usually the majority of the content is pretty standard. Some things that I look at particularly would be the the term. Um, so sometimes, particularly for exchanges of financial information, you might have an NDA that has a limited term, uh, meaning it ends after you know a year after the parties stop their discussions or some other you know, specific period of time. And that might make a lot of sense if what you're talking about is confidential financial information, because that information gets old, it's become stale and isn't really relevant anymore after you know, a not too long period of time. But for food, you know, like your recipe could remain highly valuable as a trade secret forever if you stay in business and you keep it secret. Um, So that would be a key thing you want to look at is to make sure that that protection continues ideally indefinitely. Okay. Okay. That's great. And then you were kind of going into the the next types of contracts, I think, before I I wanted to get in that that quick question. Sure. So I think the usual process, and, and obviously all manufacturers will work differently, but when you're taking... You know, in the scenario you described where you're taking a recipe from small scale production to a large manufacturing facility, there's probably going to be some R&D work that has to happen or trial run that needs to happen to see what tweaks need to be made to make the recipe on a larger scale and on the equipment that the manufacturer has. Um, so if the manufacturer is doing uh, product development work, you'll want to know how you're paying for that and who's going to own the results of that. And if you're the brand owner, you're going to want to own all of the intellectual property that results from that work. Um, and then there's also usually this an initial trial production run, which may not be at the same full scale as a full manufacturing run. And often that initial production is under 
a much more simple kind of agreement than the full-blown co-manufacturing agreement that's intended to go on for a period of years. Okay, great. And then in the instance where, say, I have more of an idea for a a product and I need, like I know in the energy bar space, there's some companies where you can go and they're like, you have an idea, we'll we'll develop the recipe and all of it, you know, you're not, they're not even starting from something and scaling it. They're just coming up with all of the recipe. I'm assuming that that means you need to have even more uh, specific provisions around you owning the IP at the end or how you're paying for it so that that doesn't get, so that you own it at the end of the day, if you ever end up switching. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, I mean, this, this goes, whether you're hiring a product development consultant um, or if, so often manufacturers have people like that on staff who provide that kind of service. And if, if it's not directly addressed and uh, you know, where there's an explanation of what this is going to cost and who owns it, then you run the risk that the manufacturer will take the position that they developed it and they own it. And basically what they're doing for you is now a private label kind of agreement where they're producing their product under your label. Uh, So it's really important to be explicit about that. And any sort of product development services should be memorialized in some kind of written agreement that explains what services are going to be provided, what are the deliverables, what's being paid for that, and what are who owns the IP that results from it? And you know there are different variations of that ownership, and in some cases it might actually be fair for it to be joint ownership. Um, but it, as long as everybody's clear about it, that's the most important thing. And what do you see the process usually looking like? So I've so you know we've engaged with this this co-packer. Maybe we've done an R and D run. It's gone well and it's like, all right, we want to establish a long-term relationship to make, you know, gluten-free organic cookies or, you know, or some other new product. And what does it then the negotiation process kind of look like? I'm assuming that they're sending you over their contract is then what are the next steps? Is it having an attorney like yourself review? Is it then going back? Is there generally a lot of editing? I'm kind of curious what the process a lot of times looks like. So in my experience, it's all over the map. <laughs> it's, it's all everything that you you just mentioned could be possible. Some contract manufacturers have their own form agreements that they like to use. Um, a lot of those that I've seen are extremely one-sided in the favor of the manufacturer, as you might expect, and not cover a lot of the things or sometimes any of the things that the brand owner might really care about. Sometimes they're, they're pretty fair and don't need that much work, but you know, there's a wide variability uh, among co-manufacturers from where I sit in terms of their um, level of comfort with contracts even um, and the level of sophistication with the kinds of contracts that they have. But a lot of times they don't have one to propose or they are completely open to the brand owner proposing a contract. Um, so in my practice, I'd say it's probably 50-50 with between reviewing a contract that the manufacturer proposed or drafting one from scratch for my client who's the brand owner. So it can go either way. And you know, then where it goes from there, once you have a draft, you know, I sort of never know. I'd say most typically for, for me and my clients, they usually do the negotiating themselves with you know, the business counterpart at the co-manufacturer rather than having lawyers doing those discussions. But I've 
you know, I've also had clients where I've been very involved in the negotiations. Um, so that all really varies and depends on the comfort level of the parties. But before there's even a written agreement, I like to encourage my clients to, I, I kind of give them a checklist of things that are the key things that need to be decided and that will go into the agreement. And so they can use that as a way to talk through issues with their counterpart at the co-manufacturer and see if they can come to some agreement in principle. And then they can sort of turn that into notes that I can use to make sure that the contract reflects what we believe the agreement to be. And you know, we make sure we cover all bases by doing that. So I find that to be useful. You can waste a lot of time if you're drafting a long agreement, kind of guessing as to what the parties uh, would agree to, or, you know, me putting in whatever I think would be good. And then, you know, once it gets reviewed by the other side, then completely changing everything. So kind of, it's good to have discussions and come to an agreement in principle about the key things. There's a lot of it is going to be kind of boilerplate that I would put in, in any event. Um, but the business sort of terms, you know, obviously pricing and um, the process for submitting orders and, the specifications for the product, those kinds of things, the party should have a pretty good understanding first, and then we get it all, hopefully in a very clear way, in a written agreement. Okay. And then what usually provisions are there if if something changes? You know, if I'm assuming with everything going on right now that a lot of manufacturers are seeing cost increase and they're going to end up passing that along to the brand. What kind of provisions do you see in there to be like, all right, you know, pricing needs to be adjusted. How does that get communicated to the brand or how do you how do both parties kind of protect themselves as, as things change? And what do you see about provisions for when the contract needs to evolve? Yeah. So regard, regarding pricing, it is very common for the, there to be some mechanism for price changes in the agreement. Um, and that's also going to depend on who's supplying the ingredients and raw materials. So um, if the brand owner is responsible for sourcing basically everything, then maybe there's less of a need for the co-manufacturing agreement to have pricing changes because really the the price in that agreement is going to be the toll. It's going to be you know payment for the service that's being provided as opposed to for the inputs that, that are going to be used and that are, are more susceptible to... Um, you know, to price cost increases. But even even for the toll, like, there could be reasons why the manufacturer's utility costs go much higher than expected or labor costs go much higher. So there usually is some mechanism uh, to, to deal with that. And it can be things like uh, at every six months or once a year, there'll be some kind of accounting to look at what the costs are and see if they've increased over, a signif- uh, over some threshold amount. And then to adjust the pricing to accommodate that, that's one way to do it. Or it can be that the uh, customer, the brand owner is charged separately for the toll and the ingredients so that the actual cost of the ingredients get passed through to the customer. And so that's a way to deal with price fluctuations on the inputs. Um, But there are a variety of ways. It is obviously fair (laughs) that pricing would not remain fixed for a very long period of time. But if you're, if you're the brand owner, you're going to want to get as much stability around pricing as possible for as long as possible. And so there can be some competing interests there. And you mentioned that, you know, sometimes the, the brand is doing the sourcing. Sometimes the co-manufacturer is doing the 
raw material sourcing. Can you talk about some of the the differences in in those types of setups and how on the brand side, especially if you're supplying your own ingredients, then what does it look like to, you know, what kind of provisions are you putting in there to make sure that you get everything to the co-manufacturer on time to do your run? Or if you're, if the manufacturer is providing it, how do you make sure from a brand perspective that what kind of variance is there if you need gluten-free oats, you know, how is the contract manufacturer going to be switching brands quite a bit? Does that affect your product? Does it not kind of those different pieces? Yeah. So if the, if the brand owner is supplying ingredients or packaging anything that needs to be there before production can happen, then um, what I often see is a requirement. There's a deadline that everything has to be in place at least 24 or 48 hours or whatever period of time before a scheduled production date. And if it's not, then the uh, manufacturer can cancel that production date. And because they're likely to have downtime as a result of that, you know, it's not so easy all the time for them to just switch from making one product to another. You know, they like to have things planned in advance to be as efficient as possible. So if they've lost production time as a result of that, there's usually some fee that gets passed on to the brand owner to compensate the manufacturer for that lost production time. If the manufacturer is supplying ingredients, then usually in the specifications, and the specifications is usually, it could be its own document, um, could be a very lengthy document, but it often gets attached as a schedule or an exhibit to the co-manufacturing agreement so that it's part of that agreement. And usually that will have provisions, it should have provisions in it that uh, identify the acceptable sources of particular ingredients or for things that are really fungible that, you know, just describe those adequately to make sure that the manufacturer is using approved ingredients that meet the specifications. And then if, if they don't do that, then any anything that the manufacturer fails to meet in the specifications is grounds for rejecting the product. And, you know, and this can happen sometimes where there's a a brand owner has particular requirements for certain kinds of ingredients and for whatever reason the manufacturer doesn't use them and you know that might affect like you know if, this is, if we're talking about gluten free that might affect the validity of that claim and expose the brand owner to significant liability uh, for sending out a product with um, labeling claims that are inaccurate or that don't comply with regulations. So so it's a real issue and specifications need to be really clear. And what tips, do, I guess, do you have for brand owners of if you're if you're really new to this, it seems like all the, the specification process could be pretty overwhelming if you're, you know, like, how is it stored? How is it packed? How is it palletized? Like all the the packaging, all of that. How do you, what tips do you give to to people as they go through the process of like, all right, you know, this is going to be a super important document. And as you're learning and growing, some of it, maybe you don't know, or you're trying to figure out how do you help people kind of navigate that process? Yeah. Um, so usually I don't, because <laughs> I don't know either. I'm a lawyer, right? I don't yep. know how you actually make food products that meet, you know, what the QA criteria need to be. I mean, I've seen enough of this that I have a pretty good sense of what kind of things should be in there. Um, I have a very good sense of whether the specifications are written comprehensively enough and clearly enough that if we have a problem, I'll be able to point to something to say, look, you didn't do this. I'm rejecting this product. 
But in terms of the specifics of you know what is that actual content that goes in that document, uh, if brand owner doesn't have their own you know experienced QA kind of people on staff, they need to hire somebody like that. I and mean, you need somebody who really understands how food is produced and what the customer, you know, like your distributors and retailers, what their requirements are going to be so that you can put all of that in the document and and make sure that it really does cover everything you need. And you don't want to be in the situation where you the manufacturer produces a whole you know, production run and there's something wrong with it, but that something <laughs> nobody knew or the manufacturer didn't know that was something that was important to, to achieve. So it, it, you know, or at least if, even if they knew it, it wasn't documented. And so they have some plausible deniability about it and will say, oh no, you need to accept this and pay for it. So it really, it, I think as much or more time needs to be spent on writing that specifications attachment than the body of the contract itself. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we touched a little bit on like, you know, say a gluten-free certification how does how do you generally see that work in like the provisions of the contract of like your product's going to be certified gluten free so the facility is going to you know they're going to be the ones that you know they're conducting the on-site audit and how do you see that usually play out as far as you know who's paying the fees for those who's responsible for um some of the the different pieces of those certification and third party audits so if it's a certification that's product specific um, kind of unique to that brand, then it's very fair and expected that the brand owner is going to pay for that. Um, but the contract should require that the manufacturer cooperate and um, you know, allow this, the certifying, you know, the auditors to come in and do whatever they need and have access to the information they need. Um, so you want to make sure that's covered in the agreement that they get that kind of access. But sometimes it can be a certification that benefits the manufacturer itself or other customers of theirs, and in which case the cost can be shared. Uh, so it just kind of depends on, on what it is. But definitely you want to see language in the contract that contemplates that this is something that's going to happen, that you know, this, the specifications should include that this is a product that the product needs to meet the certification standard um, and that the manufacturer will allow access to the facility and the information that the certifier needs to to grant that certification. Right. And on the ordering production schedule side, I'm wondering about how you build in some some flexibility or workability around that of, you know, I get a really big order from UNFI that I'm not expecting and it doesn't, you know, and there's not a lot of lead time. So how do I make sure that that can be made by my co-manufacturer or on the other side, like, you know, say when the beginning of the pandemic, when a lot of the parts of the grocery store just kind of suddenly weren't being shopped and all of a sudden you don't need the order, the PO that you put in yesterday. How do you work through some of the the ordering production schedule pieces in the in the contract? Yeah. Well, so as a brand owner, you obviously want to have as much flexibility with your orders as possible. So um, less lead time is better than more lead time. Um, or if you have to Put in orders with a lot of lead time to still have time to change those orders or to cancel them up until it's usually up until some certain deadline, at which point it becomes fixed and can't be changed. But you know, overall, it's your success in that in being flexible is going to depend 
you know, as much on the relationship and communication, I think, between the parties as what it says in the contract, right? Like, so the contract should give you the flexibility as much as you can, but, you know, recognize that the manufacturer needs some certainty as well so that they can plan their production and get the efficiencies that they need. Um, but, you know, the party, what, what it says in the contract and what will actually happen um, and the manufacturer's willingness to, to be a little bit more flexible than maybe what the letter of the contract says is going to depend a lot on the relationship and the communication, um, you know, and obviously they have to be able to do it. I mean, if they really don't have the capacity to accommodate your unexpected, much larger than usual order, you know, that's just going to be the re- reality of that situation. Do you see it as tough at all for when, you know, if, if I'm a small brand, I may be sharing a contract manufacturer with a very, very large brand. And if we both place orders at the same time, I'm guessing that generally the the large company is going to get priority or if they have a longer standing relationship or, you know, sometimes being the little guy can can be tough. Um, do you think that have you seen that be be difficult at all for brands of having to kind of vie for their space? You know, even even if a contract's in place of the co-manufacturers like, well, you know, XYZ giant company ordered and they're our number one customer. So I got to make their order, not theirs. Do you ever see things like that kind of happen? Yeah, unfortunately, I have. I mean, unfortunately, I have a I had a very good client who went out of business for this reason, because although the contract was a very good, strong contract, the manufacturer made the decision that they needed to dedicate, you know, his business decision, dedicate basically all of their production time to one much, much larger company. And even though they knew that they were breaching the agreement with my client, it was it made more economic sense to them to pay those damages to my client because of the profits they were going to get from the much bigger company. So, you know, it's important to have good, solid contracts. My my client did get a settlement out of that, that but, you know, they couldn't stay in business. So, so, you know, those are the realities is that you can have a really good contract. It can, it can get you something. But when it comes down to it, if the business decision is that it makes more sense economically to breach the contract, well, then that's what parties are going to do. Yeah. And does it make sense? I mean, obviously, maybe maybe some companies are at a scale where they have multiple co-manufacturers. But if you're you're super small, you've got one. Everything everything's good, but is do you recommend having a, a backup at all of kind of going, you know, at least partway down the road with another contract manufacturer of at least getting an idea what, what their terms are like or what it would look like to have an agreement if for some reason, you know, your current manufacturer can't fulfill, is it worth kind of having a backup? And do you see people do something like that kind of be pre- to be prepared for a worst case scenario? It would always be good to have a backup, right? Because I see this happen and I I'm, I'm dealing with the situation today for a client with a co-manufacturer who's refusing to produce on schedule and they have no backup. And so ideally you would always have a backup. Um, but practically, is that possible? Um, you know, in many cases it's not. Um, and, you know, and also it, not just practically, but also as part of the agreement, right? Like to get a larger uh, co-manufacturer to work with a small company, you might have to promise that you're going to use them exclusively, except when you get to the level that you've, um, you know, your demand is beyond what they can accommodate um, or, what, or what they've planned to accommodate. So if you've made that commitment, well, then it makes it even more difficult to have a backup. If you have to send almost all of your orders um, or all of them up until some point, 
to the one manufacturer. So, so, you know, in effect, it's can be very difficult to do, but would be a a great thing to have. I mean, there should be, you're you're relying entirely on this manufacturer to do, (laughs) to get your product, right? I mean, this is what the business is, is to sell a product. And if you don't have the product, well, then you're in a lot of trouble. And, you know, apart from manufacturers just not honoring their commitments, there can be other reasons why they can't fulfill orders for you, right? I mean, there mm-hmm. could be, um, you know, COVID <laughs> has made most of their workforce sick. I mean, it could be any kind of reasons that there can be disruptions. Um, so having redundancy in the supply chain is obviously a good thing, but, you know, not always easy to get. Right. That makes sense. And, you know, something that we don't want to think about unless we have to, but a recall situation that, that we all have to plan for in and working in food and and uh, in other products, how do you protect in from a recall situation? What does that look like if the when the manufacturer is providing all the ingredients? What if you're providing some of the ingredients as the brand, and it's one of the ingredients that you know you source that the the recall was on? Or you know, I'm curious if you could walk us through some of the different kind of recall scenarios and how the the protection provisions on both sides for it when something like that happens. Sure. So in the contract should address a recall situation. And what I think is most important is that there's a commitment that in that situation, there's going to be open communication and cooperation and sharing of information promptly. Um, because the reality of the situation when it happens and, and it will happen really to everyone, probably. I mean, you know, maybe there's somebody who's been in the food business for decades and they've never had a recall. Um, but probably in this day and age, if you're in business long enough, there will be a time when you have to do a recall and for a variety of reasons. And often though the exact cause at that moment when you have to act quickly cannot be determined, right? So you've got product that's tested positive for a listeria. You don't know exactly where it came from, but it's a class one recall situation and FDA needs to be notified within 24 hours. And you've got to start getting product off the shelves so that people don't get sick and die, right? So you the root cause analysis and all that needs to start as quickly as possible. But it, the immediate need is to just have enough information to make a decision, to notify whoever needs to be notified. And then you're going to work it all out later as to exactly who's responsible. <laughs> so, and, and that's often difficult to figure out exactly what the cause was. So having that kind of language in the contract about communication and cooperation is important. And then to have language about indemnification. And so that once you know the cause, if you know the cause, sometimes it's never really figured out, um, the parties are promising each other that they're going to cover costs to the so the, to the extent the manufacturer is responsible, it's going to cover the brand owner's costs um, and you know and damages and losses. You know, it's kind of broad indemnity language is what I like to see. Um, the from a brand owner's perspective, from the manufacturer's perspective, they're going to try to limit that as much as possible because usually the cause is going to be something that the manufacturer had control of over or is deemed to have had. Responsibility for, you know, even if it was uh, 
contamination in an ingredient that they sourced. You know, they didn't cause that. And maybe there was no way they could have known it was there. It's still their responsibility because they sourced that ingredient. And so you'd want the indemnity to put the, that cost on the manufacturer. Um, but so those two kinds of provisions would be the way to deal with that. And it's also important for brand owners to pay close attention to what obligations they have in contracts with their buyers in this type of situation, right? So distributor agreements very often require that the distributor be given notice of a recall very quickly and have access to certain information. And if you're the brand owner and you don't have that information, well, how are you going to live up to that obligation? So you you need to in turn put that kind of language in the agreement with the manufacturer to make sure that that they're going to give you the information in a timely fashion, be, be, you know, as much information as you actually need to be able to provide to the buyers. Right. Yeah, that's super helpful. I'm also wondering just from av- as you've negotiated lots of these different contracts and obviously we've gone into some of the specifics but are there kind of good buy signs bad buy signs of just like you know because i mean contract manufacturers are our friends obviously they're helping make our products and get it out into the world so but also you want to make sure that you find someone that you you can have a good workable relationship with you know even when it comes down to what's in the contract are they are they going to fulfill it like the example you said so are there some some buy signs that you've seen of like Oh, in this initial meeting, you know, it seems like this is really workable or, or things that are good indicators that there's going to be a good relationship indicators that eh, like this, this might not work out long term that your gut feeling then turned out. I'm curious about kind of just navigating the early stages of the relationship of like, is this going to be a good fit? Are we going to come to a good contract agreement? And then are they going to do what's in the contract? And also on, you know, from the co-manufacturer's point of view, like, is this brand, you know, a brand that I want to work with? Just kind of making sure the relationship works for everyone. So that's a, a good question. And I think it's important for brand owners to do their due diligence and try to talk to people who have experience with the manufacturers. I mean, this is, is, is a really hard thing to figure out <laughs> ahead of time. You don't know each other, you know how things are going to work, um, but, you know, getting good references and trying to get some insight from people who've actually worked with the manufacturer and know them to be, you know, reputable and responsible and easy to work with. That's all really good to know. And I, can't do that. As a lawyer, I <laughs> I have a, a very skewed perception in that mostly people come to me when they have problems, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so I do a lot of these agreements, people go off. And if I don't ever hear from them again about that, I don't know if that's because everything's just going great and it's the best relationship ever, um, or they've moved on to a different lawyer. Um, but I definitely hear when there are problems. And so, you know, I have this very unfair perception that a lot of co-manufacturers are awful. <laughs> Um, but I know that that's, that's a biased, skewed view. So, but get that information. And then I think other than that, some red flags would be definitely if they don't immediately propose an NDA, um, even if they don't have their own form, if they don't expect that to be part of the process early on, that would be a huge red flag because confidentiality is so important. And it's really just not professional in that industry to not respect that. And then, you know, also if they're just not willing to have a formal agreement or want it to be very, very bare bones. You know, so if the co-packer is proposing either no contract and just to go on a purchase order by purchase order basis, um, I would 
run away from that. Um, or if what they consider to be a contract is really just kind of their um, purchasing terms, um, you know, things like the pricing and payment terms and, you know, uh, how much lead time they need. If that's it and they don't really want to talk about anything else, then that would be a huge red flag. You know, and beyond that, it's just, you know, the relationship and just feeling it out and how cooperative are they going to be um, and how interested are they in, in working with you. And then from the manufacturer's perspective, I think it's got to be really difficult to gauge, but I think you'd, you'd want to know, you know how much of a pain is this customer going to be, right? Like how difficult is it going to be to meet their expectations? Because that's that's the worst scenario to be in, right? Is that you've done everything you think you're supposed to do and then the customer is not pleased and says that there is you know, some problem and they don't want to pay for it. Um, you know, And also you want to make sure that they can pay. And so some kind of credit check if you're extending them credit terms would also be important. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I'm wondering what say the contract needs to end for some reason. Maybe the the coal manufacturer is ending the agreement because they got too busy. Maybe you need to end it because you're going to self-manufacture or you you outgrew them or there's some sort of problem. What can what does the ending often look like? And then what are ways to kind of make that go smoother if that, you know, inevitably needs to happen? So the Contract could provide for termination in a variety of circumstances, right? And if you if you need flexibility and often when you're just starting out as a brand owner, you don't really know what's going to happen in the next few years, a shorter term length could be a good thing so that you have you know, a less, a less of a time commitment to the manufacturer or the ability to terminate for convenience is what it's called. So that would be a provision that gives usually either party the ability to terminate on a certain um, period of time notice in advance. So that would make it the most flexible. Um, but, you know, there's usually trade-offs for that, right? So the more of a commitment you make to each other to work together, then you can probably get more assurances, maybe more favorable pricing, maybe lower order minimums, those kinds of things. Um, you know, maybe a, a commitment for an exclusive relationship. That's kind of the trade-off if you're having a more flexible relationship. Um, there's always needs to be termination for cause, which is when one party breaches, you don't want to be stuck with them, right? So the ability to walk away, if you give notice of breach, sometimes with a period of time for the other side to cure that breach. Um, but if they don't, then you're able to terminate and walk away from the agreement without any further obligation. Um, but some, sometimes if there's a fixed term that goes on longer, you can terminate early. But if there was a promise to buy or order a certain quantity over the length of the contract, well, then the manufacturer reasonably expected to make that much money and maybe made investments. Maybe you needed some particular kind of equipment that they didn't have before, and they've had to make some kind of investment to take on your business. Well, it's reasonable for them to expect to get the return uh, over that full period of the contract term. So there might be some kind of termination fee for leaving early, to compensate them for that. Right. That makes sense. And what usually happens upon, say, an exit situation that your, you know, your your gluten free cookie company is is being acquired by by Mondelez or, you know, something like that is happening. And then it's like, all right, there this is an exit situation. What how does that play out lots of times with the contract manufacturers? And then, you know, are there there provisions for that kind of thing in in the in the contract? 
Yeah, usually there'll be some language about what happens after termination. For example, the manufacturer might have inventory on hand of materials that they've purchased just for you. So what's going to happen with that? Are you going to buy that from them? Um, If you're making that commitment, then you're going to want to make sure that they didn't buy way more than they needed. So put some some limits on how much inventory you'll be responsible to buy. Um, The ongoing obligations of confidentiality. And if you had non-competition kind of restrictions, um, confidentiality definitely should continue. Uh, And so often confidentiality agreements will say things like uh, upon request or upon the termination of the relationship, the receiving party or the manufacturer would be required to turn over or destroy materials that contain confidential information. Well, practically that could be that could be impossible because their production records, which legally they'll be required to maintain, will contain your recipe. So um, you want to think about how to deal with that um, once the relationship is over. But um, and if the non-competition may or may not continue. But sometimes, you know, if it's a, kind of a surprise occurrence like that, you know, an acquisition that wasn't planned for when the contract was originally negotiated, then well, you might be in a position of of negotiating the exit, really, you know, I mean, so this happens for all sorts of things, contracts, when you're, when you're sitting down at the outset of the relationship, you try to anticipate as much as possible how things are going to go and all the the different possible scenarios and how you're going to deal with them. But then things happen that you just didn't contemplate. And, um, you know, as long as the parties have some good faith and are willing to talk with each other, you can usually negotiate some change and, and, Usually the contract has to be amended in writing. So you would negotiate that and document what the new understanding is. And so that might be at the end of the relationship um, or could be at any point during the relationship. And during acquisition time, do you have you seen disputes over, you know, hopefully your contract had really clear provisions, but any disputes over IP of, you know, suddenly you're being being acquired and then your contract manufacturer is like, well, we developed the recipe for this, or maybe in your contract, they did own part of the recipe for whatever reason. How do you see that play out? Or have you seen those kind of situations? I can't say I have specifically um, in, you know, in an acquisition situation, I've definitely seen disagreements about who owns IP uh, that probably could have been avoided with the contract at the outset. Um, So it's really important that 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 gets documented both, you know, in the initial contract. And then, you know, let's say you come up with a new product and you've been working with the manufacturer for a while, but now you're developing something new with them. Well, make sure that if it's not covered by the existing agreement that you have an addendum or new agreement that covers the additional R&D work and the IP ownership. Um, but, you know, that, that that's the best protection is to have it really clearly documented who owns what and what the rights are. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about like new product development pieces in there. That would be super important to, to continue to make sure that you have that covered. Is there anything else that any other tips that you wanted to add or things that, you know, key pieces that we might have missed in talking through this that you want to make sure that that people take away? I guess I'll just add on uh, on IP. So it can be a little tricky. Um, certainly is commonly expected that a, a recipe, the exact recipe of a brand owner belongs to the brand owner. 
Um, like that's pretty standard. But I think I often find where there's a lot of disagreement and confusion is over you know, the extent of kind of everything associated with the product and that there's a tendency for brand owners to think they own more than they really do or that what that or that information really is proprietary to them and the manufacturer who deals with a lot more products than this brand owner does will think of things as being maybe more common knowledge so so again i mean it's really important to be explicit also recognize that the original specifications document probably needs to change over time and um, to make sure that it's really clear that as let's say the formulation has to evolve because a particular ingredient is no longer available, there's a better source of an ingredient someplace else, um, that that information stays up to date in the document um, and that it remains clear who owns what. Um, but, but brand owners also really need to have a realistic expectation about things. You know, like manufacturers have been in this business because they know how to make food. So there's a lot of know-how that is going to remain their IP. Um, and, you know, as long as a brand owner has a realistic expectation about that and there's clear communication, then probably a lot of disagreements can be avoided. Right. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it looks like to work with you, you know, as navigating the process or, or someone like yourself, you know, we'll link your contact information in the show notes and everything. So, so people can reach out, but I'm wondering if you could just kind of walk through the process of what it looks like to engage someone like yourself. And then if, if someone is, you know, looking for an attorney in this space, if you have any tips for, you know, finding the, the right attorney that that's going to work well with you and your brand to help navigate some of these things? Sure. So somebody wants to hire me, usually I have an initial consultation that I don't charge for. So we talk on the phone or Zoom or whatever, and I, I get some understanding about their business and where they are in the process. I need to know who the manufacturer is, or if they're talking to, to more than one to make sure I don't have any conflicts. But if assuming there's no conflict and, and they want to hire me, then I'll send an engagement agreement. I usually require, I always require um, an advance payment of towards my fees as a retainer to get started with a new client. Um, but then kind of just depends on where they are in the discussions, exactly how we get started. But often, often it's with the NDA that's been proposed to them by the co-manufacturer and I'll review that and maybe suggest some changes. And then I think I mentioned before, I have this kind of checklist or a questionnaire that I like to send out to my clients. That's kind of a bullet point list of the various topics that I would expect to cover in the agreement that they can use to both think through what their preferences are and to have a conversation with the co-packer about those those provisions and come to some understanding about them. Um, and then usually negotiations are happening between my client and, and the manufacturer. And I'm kind of behind the scenes drafting or revising the documents and providing advice. But sometimes I'm directly involved in the negotiations, usually only if the manufacturer has a lawyer involved in the negotiations too. And, you know, we go through however many rounds of revisions it takes to get to the, the final agreement, um, which is, which varies widely. I've had, I've had very simple where we've only, you know, maybe had one round of revisions to I've had contract negotiations that have extended for six months, which is not typical, but it's happened. So never really know 
how it's going to go until you start that process. Um, and then as far as hiring another lawyer, uh, so a lawyer who does a lot of contracts, obviously, is important. Uh, and then beyond that, I think it's very helpful for the lawyer to have experience in the food industry and to understand generally how contract manufacturers work, um, you know, what, what it's going to look like when the relationship is actually moving and production started, um, and also what sort of demands are going to be put upon the brand owner by their customers and what their regulatory compliance needs are, because all that has to be considered when you're drafting the agreement. So food industry experience, I think is really valuable. Thank you so much for, for walking us through that. And hopefully, like I said, we'll link your contact info in the show notes so people can reach out if they have any questions. Well, thank you so much today for joining us, Lauren. It's so helpful to hear your expertise and to walk us through some of these very tricky pieces, but that are so fundamental to to the CPG industry. So really appreciate your time and help. And just thanks for being here. Thanks again for having me. It's fun. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our partner, Handel Food Law. You can find contact info in the show notes. This Startup CPG podcast is executive produced by me, Jesse Freitag. Theme music is by the Super Fantastics. We'd love to have you join our community of founders and experts. Get the invite at startupcpg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. It's the easiest way to help us grow our community. See you next time.